I'm Michael Cross, host of the KOSU Daily Podcast. Every weekday, I bring you the biggest Oklahoma stories of the day with reporting and analysis from our team of journalists and partners. Get the news you need to start your day in less than 10 minutes. Find the KOSU Daily in your podcast feed and subscribe now. This Week in Oklahoma Politics is sponsored by the Oklahoma State Medical Association, cornerstone of Oklahoma medicine with physician members who are committed to better health for all Oklahomans. Learn more at okmed.org. For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel. State Superintendent Ryan Walters is breaking ties with three education organizations for what he calls pushing a woke agenda, working in tandem with national extremist groups and forcing failed policies into schools. The groups are the Oklahoma State School Boards Association, the Cooperative Council for Oklahoma School Administration, and the Oklahoma Public School Resource Center. Neva, why would Walters do this? Uh, Good question. I think he basically laid out that uh, um, he had issues with these folks. I mean, it is interesting. I mean, here he's been the superintendent for some time, um, and then he chooses uh, the day this week that an hour before he's going before the uh, uh, budget uh, committee at the House uh, to uh, lay out uh, what they what they are advocating uh, for education in the coming year in terms of dollars being appropriated. Um, and then you have these three nonprofit groups basically, you know, coming under this kind of an assault and really, uh, to the surprise, it appears of almost everyone. So uh, what the calculation is, I think it clearly sets up for a lot of conversation. And I think it's interesting, um, and the listeners should know, I mean, these groups are voluntary memberships. Uh, these groups, uh, COSA in particular, um, has been in existence for more than 50 years. It's an umbrella group that basically has all of the uh, professional associations. I mean, you have the school administrators, the uh, secondary school principals, elementary school principals, uh, uh, directors of special services, uh, middle of, mid, middle uh, school folks as well. So you've got this whole group uh, under this umbrella organization, and they have a variety of things that uh, that they do for their membership. I think one of the things that they pointed out uh, this week, kind of in response to uh, the superintendent's action, was that last year they had over uh, 5,400 educators that attended their professional development events, um, did other things on topics such as uh, school finance and edu- special ed, teacher evaluations. I mean, the things that they need to know about, they care about, they want information about. So superintendent's position appears to be, look, this is duplicitous. Uh, we do this at the, at the uh, uh, State Department of Education, so these folks really don't need to um, you know, be in the equation. Um, I think it'll be interesting to see across the board all three of these associations and groups, uh, how they respond with their membership and how those educators, the people, the teachers, the the administrators, all of the folks across the board engaged with these groups, how they interact now with legislators as they come back into session uh, and what that does in terms of creating perhaps more friction for the superintendent with uh, not only lawmakers, but perhaps uh, a lot of other folks in the education community. Ryan. And if you said that this came out an hour before his budget committee hearing, budget committee hearing meeting that many thought, and I think that we talked about last week, you know, might you know, be fireworks and, you know, you know, get, you get your seat, ringside seat, get your popcorn <laughs> ready because, uh, you know, anything could happen at this. 
But instead, what happened at that committee hearing, I think, was this refreshingly boring committee meeting uh, where everybody you know, seemed to kind of get along and there wasn't a lot, you know, a lot of the kind of the Ryan Walters drinking game, you know, woke porn, what, you know, whatever the words you think you might want to say. Everybody walked out sober because, you know, it, it was, again, this you know, seemed much more like a routine budget committee hearing meeting between a uh, an elected state official, statewide official, and legislators that control their budget. And uh, I think it's interesting yeah. because Representative McBride, one of the comments he made was that uh, that this was a reset. He indicated that he had met with Superintendent Walters last week, um, I, that they'd come to terms with the fact that this was a budget hearing, it wasn't a policy uh, hearing, and that what they wanted were numbers. And what they wanted to know was what his view and direction was where he saw the department needing to go in the coming fiscal year and where those dollars he suggested should be appropriated. So he laid out a number of things. Uh, there'll be certainly a lot of uh, conversation about some of it, but I think even Representative McBride said that the change was that post-subpoena, post-information being mm -hmm. given by the department and the superintendent, that they now had uh, basically uh, improved communications by 100%, mm -hmm. I think he said. So hopefully, as we talked about last week, we have kind of, uh, we have seen the bar reset and at least the conversation inside the Capitol, in these committee hearings, and as legislation is formulated and moves forward, there will be at least a better tone and process, hopefully, to uh, uh, see this move through the session. But even still, you've got the superintendent who can't just help himself. I mean, he, he almost had an entire week of uh, kind of a normal news cycle and just could not help himself, had to drop this press release beforehand, almost as a, maybe a signal to some of his supporters that don't worry. Uh, you know, I still, you know, I'm still towing the line on all of this other stuff. And, you know, he says that these groups are working in tandem with national extremist groups, which is just wild. You know, I think a lot of this is, is probably one. I think he wanted to continue to send a signal uh, to people that d depend on him to have generate this kind of hyperbolic rhetoric that comes out of his office. But then um, I think it's also possibly in retaliation. COSA put out a, an, uh, an anonymous survey among its members asking about federal grant information because there hasn't been a lot of information about federal grant dollars. Are they hitting classrooms? Are they hitting the local school districts? And that uh, information came back and seemed to indicate that there were still delays and gaps in getting federal grant dollars to classrooms. And perhaps the, the superintendent uh, did not like that and wanted to you know, send a message, but who knows? Like you said, Neva, these, all of these organizations play an important role in continuing edu education for uh, staff. Um, professionals uh, within the administrators within these school districts, school board members themselves, and a lot of these organizations have local control. And again, this I think comes back to this theme that we've seen from the state superintendent, even though he calls himself this conservative, he's continuing to you know try to rein and control from local school boards and put it into the uh, state department of education. You know, it's interesting too that the. Um uh, the Oklahoma Public School Resource Center, one of the three groups uh, that he called into question, uh, it was earlier this month that they announced that they had hired April Grace as their new executive director. And I think, uh, as we remember, April Grace <laughs> was in the uh, uh, superintendent's race uh, and w was in a runoff with Ryan Walters. Ultimately, uh, Ryan Walters became the Republican nominee and 
uh, was elected superintendent. But uh, whether that uh, factors into this or not, it certainly, uh, I think, has raised some eyebrows. And I think the other point uh, that you make about the School Board Association, um, this is a group, another nonprofit, that has a 32-member board that are local school board members. So it's governed. It's, it, it's a group that is uh, designed to help train and work uh, to make sure that school board members across the state uh, have the education and services that they need provided. And again, much of that is also done in concert uh, with the State Department of Education, but to suggest that it's an either-or proposition, I think there's going to be a tremendous amount of pushback to that notion, um, and we'll just have to see whether there's any bend on the superintendent's part or whether he's going to dig in and make this uh, one of the fights uh, in, this, in this upcoming year. Oklahoma's five civilized tribes are joining in unity to boycott a Governor Stitt task force to study the impact of McGirt. Stitt created the task force at the end of 2023 to address law enforcement issues on tribal lands. Ryan, what are some of the issues leaders are seeing here? Well, I think the biggest issue is that you have, you have two of the 13 seats of the task, for, task force that were set aside for uh, tribal representation. There are 38 tri- uh, recognized tribes in, this, in the state of Oklahoma. You set aside, you know, the you know two. Uh, what did I say? You know, three seats uh, out of fifteen. Is two, that right? Two, 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 two seats out two of, out of thirteen. Two out of thirteen. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, numbers there. You know, give me a moment. <laughs> I went to law school, everybody. Uh, you know, so two out of thirteen seats. And you know, when you look at what these tribal governments have said, is that this isn't a a genuine good faith good faith outreach to try to bring tribal governments into this conversation. Uh, you cannot ask one tribal government to represent the interest of other tribal governments and to to say that you can you know say take consolidate all 38 tribes down to just a couple of opinions from a couple of tribal representatives um, that's just ridiculous and i think that the tribal governments recognize that from the outset i also think if you look at the impetus behind this task force it goes back to an Oldmogie county or an Oldmogie, uh, um city police department where they had a, an issue where tribal light horsemen brought in someone that they had uh, arrested on suspicion of uh, possessing a large amount, what they said was a fentanyl, uh, brought them in under a cross-deputization agreement, and then they were refused by the Mogi Police Department to bring this uh, person into custody uh, and to book them into the jail. And a, a scuffle ensued between the Light Horsemen and Oklahoma, uh, or the Okmulgee uh, Police Department officials. And um, I think that that played into this idea that Governor Stitt is saying that you know, McGirt has created chaos. And, and in reality, there, there's, I think, probably greater clarity now uh, around jurisdiction, around who has jurisdiction, who uh, has the ability to arrest, not arrest, mm-hmm. uh, try, prosecute, any of these criminal issues. The, the lack of clarity has been in the last century, uh, you know, prior to McGirt. McGirt gave us clarity. There's you know, definitely things that need to be worked out with that, but the way you work it out is through compacting process, working in cooperation with tribal governments. Um, and I, I think that when they were putting this task force together and they said, we're going to give you uh, just a limited number of representation on here, they had to know, the governor's administration had to know that the tribal governments in the state of Oklahoma were going to reject that. And that's exactly what's happened right now. They have rejected it, but I think they also kind of set the stage to say, look, if we can come back to the table, we can have some conversation and we can expand the representation by these uh, uh, by these uh, tribal nations, then then they would be open to that conversation. Now, whether that, again, is an intractable move or whether uh, 
there can be some conversation remains to be seen. But the, I, I think you're right, Ryan, in terms of we're back to we're back to the the where the rub is on the McGirt decision, the governor's uh, position on what what he thinks uh, in terms of what it has done or not done, and then of course from the tribal perspective, the uh, the the belief that the McGirt decision did in fact give tribal sovereignty to tribal nations and their police forces in terms of ruling in criminal cases, bringing them uh, to be tried in tribal courts rather than state courts unless they fall under the Major Crimes Act. So pretty, pretty clear cut in the view of the, of, in the, view of the tribal nations. So um, this is one of those impasses where the governor and tribal leaders are never going to appear mm. <laughs> be in agreement. I think the issue now becomes can they find a way to move forward with things such as this task force where it can be constructive and have all of the necessary parties at the table, or is it a non-starter? And I think, again, that there are more questions than answers uh, as we see this process move forward. Traffic tickets involving tribal license plates and issued by the Oklahoma Highway Patrol are getting quietly dropped, according to court records. The citations hit the headlines, but one was dismissed by a Garfield County judge and a second was never filed in court. Neva, are there still concerns from the tribes? I think so. And I think, uh, you know, once again, we're at this we're at this point where um, it's an ongoing issue. State lawmakers uh, 12 years ago thought they were addressing and dealing with this issue. We've seen we've seen the legislature and current and past governors uh, being drawn into this conversation, and yet we don't seem to be getting any resolution. And I think uh, it will be very interesting to see if lawmakers use this session as the as the kind of point in time where they try to kind of reset the whole conversation and address this issue once and for all uh, legislatively, uh, whether that uh, is enough or whether it winds up in the courts and whether it's an ongoing uh, battle remains to be seen. But clearly, I think the issues that came kind of to the forefront once again with those tickets being issued back in December um, raise the raise the uh, question and certainly need some answers and I think it will be interesting to see where we go from here. Right. Well, and we'd gone decades without anything like this happening. Even even though there were was apparent lack of clarity in the law. Even though the the idea that you have to garage your car in the jurisdiction in which you've got the license plate and if you don't, then perhaps you can't have that license plate or if you do, then uh, you'd be subject to a ticket like this. If you haven't had any tickets for you know over a decade in this, and then all of a sudden you get a couple, everybody is really concerned. And these are expensive tickets, you know, you know, almost three hundred dollars that you know it's going to cost you in these situations. People are, are you know concerned about what's going to happen. Am I going to be uh, on the hook for this? Uh, am I illegal whenever I'm driving around? Can I get pulled over for this? Uh, just a lot of questions. And and this is, I think, you know, going back to our prior topic when we were talking about you know the governor wanting this. Uh, you know, task force on McGirt and criminal justice and public safety issues. He's calling for that because he, he believes there's confusion post McGirt. And I think of what a lot of tribal leaders would say is that the governor is the one creating the confusion here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and through the Department of Public Safety and through the issuance of these tickets to begin with, uh, and even the idea that all of a sudden we're just going to start enforcing this thing after years and not ever enforcing it, that's where the confusion is coming from. Uh, the Attorney General Gittner Drummond has said that this does need to be resolved. It needs to be resolved through the compacting process. Uh, there, if you look at what a lot of these tribal governments are already doing, they're collecting these license fee plates 
uh, whenever they're getting their registrations. And a lot of that money is going back not only to the tribal community, but to non-tribal uh, uh, entities and, and, and indi- individuals and school districts within those tribal jurisdictions. So um, there, there are already a lot of you know, positive ways and, and ideas of how to deal with this, but it's going to have to be solidified in a compacting uh, process. The legislature may take that up. And as we, we've seen now, the legislature has made it clear that the compacting rights that the governor has are, are given to him by statute, not by the Constitution, not by federal law. They're given to him by statute by the legislature. And if the governor doesn't want to go along with that, they can overwrite his veto. So we, we may begin to see the legislature step into the, the breach here and say, we're going to compact with the tribes. We're going to go through this compacting process. We're going to renegotiate these agreements. And if the governor doesn't like it at the end of the day, we'll override his veto on anything that we approve. And it's interesting because one of the points that they can kind of immediately, it would appear, address is the fact that with these unregistered tribal tags, um, being at what DPS views as a critical level, um, that you only have two of, I believe, the 33 uh, tribes that issue car tags, uh, providing that information to the state vehicle database. If they could just overcome that hurdle, it would go a long way in addressing this issue of public safety and being able to have that information readily available to all of the entities and law enforcement across the board so that that is not an issue as they deal with uh, traffic stops and other things, which uh, uh, really seems to be at the core of much of this conversation. The Oklahoma Turnpike Authority plans to challenge a state law diluting the governor's power over appointments to the commission overseeing the agency. House Bill 2263 to end exclusive gubernatorial control over the Turnpike Board was vetoed by Governor Stitt, but overridden by lawmakers. Attorneys for the OTA say the law violates the separation of powers doctrine and is unconstitutional. Ryan, does the Turnpike Authority have a case here? I, I think that it's a stretch to think that they've got a case here. The the, the state constitution in Oklahoma sets up a very powerful state legislature, uh, and the governor's office, the executive branch, is by constitutional definition a weak executive. And the legislature uh, essentially has the, the, the prerogative under the constitution to, to do whatever they want to do so long as it doesn't violate the United States constitution. That I mean, at the outset, that's the circle of power that the state legislature has. Now, the, uh, once something has been delegated to the executive branch, it's the executive branch's job to, to enforce the law and to administer that law. But the legislature can say who's going to be on these boards and commissions. Um, I think that you know, if the Turnpike Commission were to prevail here, we would see a number of boards and commissions, agencies around the state of Oklahoma, where you have representation by, uh, you know, selected by both by the executive branch, but then also by uh, the Senate pro temp uh, and, the, and the Senate. Uh, who's the leader of the Oklahoma State Senate and the, the Speaker of the House who leads the Oklahoma House of Representatives. There are many other instances in which they appoint representatives there as well. So I think it's going to be a, a very difficult case for them to say that um, they are violating the separation of powers doctrine here. Now, once they've made, because once they've made those appointments, their individuals there are, are acting on that board and commission. Mm-hmm. They're not going back to the legislature and saying, tell me how to vote. Tell me what the act is, and then you then you have a majority of the legislature voting to direct their uh, their representative on the the border commission. That's just not happening. So, I think that you know once those appointments are made, they're serving on there. They can constitute these boards and commissions really any way that they want to. I mean, when I say they, the legislature, and the, the governor again uh, is it's a weak executive under the the state constitution, and um, you know that's I I don't think that the the state supreme court is going to. Uh, empower the the executive more than than it already is. 
Neva? I, I think that's right. And, you know, it's important <laughs> to note that governors have appointed uh, turnpike commissioners uh, since the agency was uh, created back in the 1940s. Yeah. Nothing mm-hmm. new. What we're talking about now is who has control. Does the gover- governor have control of uh, more appointees than the pro tem and the speaker, either individually or combined? Mm-hmm. And I think, at, at, I think you're right, Ryan. It's going to be a stretch to... Uh, uh, suggest that they are going to be able to uh, kind of uh, through unanimous vote by the uh, uh, by the uh, transportation authority to want to move this into the legal realm and try to see if they can kind of recalibrate this uh, to the liking of the governor and and to the to the to the board currently itself. It seems like that's going to be a difficult hurdle to over mm-hmm. overcome. And I think it's important to note, just like we talked uh, all through the past year. Uh, much of this came, and the delay of more than a year with Access Oklahoma and the whole turn, the, the Turnpike projects uh, was the result of basically the Transportation Commission uh, not being uh, receptive and not being uh, uh, open to uh, to these residents in Norman who had opposition to uh, uh, the Turnpike uh, that was going through their neighborhoods. So I think uh, I think this is still the rub of. Uh, not wanting to have this full transparency in the view of some of those folks, uh, uh, having uh, limited time speaking before the the uh, commission meetings and all of those sorts of things that, again, people are starting to pay more attention to as a result of this ongoing litigation and what's happened here in the last year or so. Well, and Commission uh, Chair John Jones said as much whenever he said that if they didn't challenge this law, it could put at risk any actions taken by the implementation of uh, the the five billion dollar access program, and that you know that, as that was reported in the Oklahoma, that was Commissioner Jones' response. He said, "We've got to we've got to challenge this, or everything could be in jeopardy." Well, that's just the whole point. Is that <laughs> the, it, well, yeah, it's like well, you're you're saying the obvious here. Yes, it could be in jeopardy because you've got new representatives on there. They may have a different point of view, and that's what the legislature decided was necessary. Mm-hmm. Uh, now. Whether those individuals that are appointed go on there and they, they make votes that do put those uh, plans at risk, uh, according to Chairman Jones, we don't know yet. And, and, if they, and if they do, well, then it's up to Chairman Jones and it's up to the Turnpike Commission to follow through with the, the wish of the, uh, with these new representatives and the majority on that board. And from the legislative perspective, it's important to remember that the governor, the governor vetoed, but the legislature overrode that veto. So this is the same legislature coming back into session in three, three weeks from now. And to think that there's some change of heart in their approach to this would, I think, be, uh, would, would be a stretch as well. Oklahoma's Secretary of Transportation could be getting a pay raise. The governing board for the Department of Transportation agreed to recommend a $60,000 increase for Tim Gatz, who is also the head of ODOT and the Turnpike Authority. If approved by the governor, Gatz's salary would increase to $245,000 a year. Neva, what do you think about this raise? Well, I think it certainly raised some eyebrows <laughs> when they saw that uh, when they saw that figure. Um, here we have uh, here we have an individual, Tim Gatz, who serves as the head of the Department of Transportation, the Turnpike Authority, and is the governor's uh, cabinet secretary for transportation. Um, and you have this board, who the uh, Transportation Commissioner Michael Junk uh, making. 
uh, uh, making the statement basically that uh, that this was warranted, that this was something uh, that uh, certainly was uh, recommended unanimously by the transportation board. Uh, this sixty dollar sixty thousand dollar raise, I think it's interesting, pushes that salary to about two hundred and forty five thousand dollars. I I believe that's more than the governor or any of the other statewide elected yeah. officials. Not more than some in 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 state government, but certainly at the high high level. Um, and I thought it was interesting, too. Let's remember Michael Junk on the Transportation Commission was the governor's chief of staff uh, in early in his uh, first term. He's now uh, returned to Tulsa and working uh, uh, with one of the major corporations up there, former deputy mayor, someone politically connected and certainly somebody heavily aligned with the uh, with the governor. But uh, this will definitely raise issues, and I think the fact that that you also had Tim Gantz telling uh, in that meeting with the governing board that they were going to provide uh, employee raises, adjustments that were anywhere from 3 to 14%, I believe it was, that's a $10 million annual price tag in, the, in their budget. Uh, they're saying it has to be to keep up with the market, but again, we're talking about state government and these agencies uh, pushing uh, these uh, these salaries uh, up and up and up at the same time of uh, competing against the the marketplace out there with private uh, entities also trying to do business with the state of Oklahoma. So there's uh, again, I think this is part of a larger conversation in the budget process that we're going to hear a lot of conversation about in the next few months. Right. Well, I think anytime you talk about a $60,000 raise. I mean, there are a lot of state employees out there that don't even make $60,000 and, you know, let alone a raise uh, to somebody that would, would, uh, would be $60,000. That's a, that's an enormous amount of money for most Oklahomans. And now on, on the flip side, I'll say that if you, if you look in the private sector and you've got an executive that manages this many people and, you know, this many portfolios of, of interest uh, in the private sector, a $245,000 salary is, is probably something that's reasonable to command uh, because you've got to... It break, may even be low in may, the marketplace. It may, may even be low in the marketplace. And, you know, I've... Uh, so I, I think that, you know, for me, it's it's less of an issue of, you know, are we paying a state employee $245,000? It's it's really more a matter of, um, are we seeing these kind of uh, you know, market-based competition for, for payroll? Because that's that's what we're doing here. We're trying to compete with the private sector and make sure that... You know, we're not just saying we just need people that are public servants through and through, and they they will come in and they'll work for for pennies on the dollar, and we don't ever have to uh, worry about it. At the end of the day, we have to be competitive to some extent. You know, I think the public sector is never going to be perfect parallel with the private sector, and there does have to be some sort of spirit of public service. There are a lot of benefits to working for for the state uh, government, but at the same time, um, you've got to have some payroll that matches. So. You know, this, you know, $10 million additional increase to try to raise the other salaries across the board. None of those folks are going to get $60,000 raises. Um, but um, it, it does, I think, raise this larger question of, of state government and state employees of are we doing enough to keep up with the private sector? Are we doing enough to keep up with inflation right now? Um, and, you know, we shouldn't ask our state employees out there to lose money on their paychecks uh, year after year, especially in a, in a time of inflation. And then it just gets hard to swallow whenever they pick up a, uh, a newspaper. And in this instance, it's not necessarily a newspaper that they pick up. It's when they're reading online. This story was reported. This is kind of a, you know, just a sidebar here. Reported by Barbara Hobrock, who longtime Capitol reporter with Tulsa World, is now with Oklahoma Voice. So this you know, story, uh, excellent reporting by Barbara Hobrock, OklahomaVoice.com. 
uh, they, if they go on Oklahoma Voice and they read this and they say, well, this guy's getting a $60,000 raise. Well, what about me? Uh, and that's a difficult conversation. And legislators are probably going to hear about that from constituents. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Uh, programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at donate.kosu.org. Hey there, this is Ginny Mae Harms with KOSU, where we want to talk with you, not just at you. One way we connect with listeners just like you is through social media, like Instagram. So follow us at KOSU Radio, where you'll get a behind-the-scenes look into KOSU reporting, station news, and even ticket giveaways. Just follow KOSU Radio on Instagram, and we'll see you there. 